It's high time to pass the message that corruption kills. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Christopher Starke, and today we are continuing our special series featuring experts who can shed some light on the current developments in Ukraine. Today, we welcome Anastasia Kirilenko to the podcast. Anastasia is an investigative journalist from Russia, writing, among others, for The Insider. She's also the co-author of a documentary titled Putin and the Mafia, which was aired on many TV stations all across Europe. In the interview, we talk about the documentary, the recent restrictions on media freedom in Russia, and the role of oligarchs in Russian politics. Without further ado, over to the interview. So, Anastasia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast uh, in these very difficult times. I assume also for you having family in Russia and knowing people in the Ukraine. So, first of all, how are you doing and how did you experience the last 10 days since the war broke out? Thank you for having me. I have a family on both sides. I have also family in Ukraine and Sumy, which is now under bombs. And of course, it's a difficult time, but it's also my job. It's okay. I'm working a lot, trying to <laughs> to satisfy almost every request from colleagues, journalists, etc., to help everybody. And of course, my stories on corruption in Russia will be updated. For example, on who is resigned from Western enablers of the Putin corruption? Because many of them resigned over this war. Uh, I don't know about Schroeder so far, <laughs> but in France, we have uh, Francois Fillon, who is a uh, former prime minister, and he was working for two uh, Russian oil giant companies. So first, he was saying during uh, the very first 24 hours, he was saying something like, why do I have to resign? This is NATO's fault, uh, this war. Just in two days, he okay. He was probably worried on the upcoming sanctions even against him, so he resigned and he denounced this war by Putin. Yeah, we already briefly talked before, and there is so much to to talk about this issue. But before we dive into the the whole topic, maybe give us a little bit of your background. Like, how did you become an investigative journalist? Why did you specialize in corruption and from what I noticed, that you are uh, currently you are in in Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's <laughs> very simple. I was born in in Siberia, in Russia, and my first graduation is in international relations. It was quite propaganda. So I learned during five years how the whole West is against us and how the West is paying Ukraine. It was during the first Orange Revolution. But also we, we learned uh, several languages and I was very good and fluent in French. It was <laughs> obvious that I could continue my graduation in, in other places. <laughs> so I uh, applied for, for journalism just because um, by curiosity. So I'm like, a, I was an outsider in, in journalism. I don't know in Europe, but in Russia, you are doing journalism if your father uh, is journalist, <laughs> if you are from the milieu. But I liked it already during the studies. 
uh, I was an intern at the French media, um, and first of all, I was shocked uh, in, in Paris that you know Russian propaganda is saying the West is against us, but they don't care. <laughs> it was uh, back in two, uh, 2006, for example, Alexander Litvinenko, Russian whistleblower, was just killed by radioactive substance, and even this event received very little coverage. People were hardly aware about Russia. So, yeah, I understood um, uh, that something was wrong. And then I just started to, to speak. Just among my friends, uh, someone was in Chechnya and briefed me in informal way what is happening, etc. And about Putin, I was also intern at the web media in Russia, but I did straight away an undercover investigation. It was election in Russia, and I infiltrated by accident a team of people who was falsifying elections. It means one man was voting 30 times for the party of Putin. I would say I was just young and unafraid. I was 23. Like, you know, you are asking yourself, is it really possible that they recruit just like these people to falsify elections among my friends? Uh, so it was my first investigation, and uh, uh, after that, my editor-in-chief told me, so everybody can criticize Putin that he is not a good Democrat. But in fact, we have evidence that he is like, corrupt and even linked to very bad crimes like embezzlement. And since uh, the very beginning of his career, could you please uh, dig in it? And I managed to have an interview with a whistleblower who was hiding from Putin. She spoke a little bit in 2000, but then the documentation was not online. Years passed, people started to forget. And I managed to have documentation to put it online. And then another people, whistleblowers with another documentation incriminating Putin and his entourage, people uh, started to contact me and themselves. Uh, so this is how it uh, started. <laughs> I mean, you have conducted many investigative pieces in your career, and probably the most famous one is the documentary Putin and the Mafia, which was aired on many TV stations all across Europe. And there you go into Russia, you speak with a lot of people on the ground, and you also visit the places where there was allegedly a big palace in deep in the forest, close to the Finnish border that was owned by Putin. So, first of all, what did you learn during your investigations? What kind of techniques did you use? And I would like to invite you to take our listeners backstage into how the work of an investigative journalist on the ground in Russia looks like. So, first of all, uh, the message behind the scenes of, of this movie, Putin and the Mafia, uh, was uh, also known Putin Godfather in French-speaking countries. It was that he may really start a big war. It was uh, said, probably we did not <laughs> keep it on air, but it was said by at least two people who worked with Putin before. Uh, one of them, uh, Sergei Kolesnikov, who was practically the Putin's bookkeepers. He calls himself like this. So, unfortunately, there are many dozens of people who uh, have nothing to lose. They participated in the corruption schemes, like uh, Sergei Kolesnikov. He was manager of the scheme when the oligarchs were given donations to Russian hospitals, but uh, under the, the condition to divert 35% to the accounts in Liechtenstein, Switzerland, to build uh, Putin's palace on the Black Sea. 
Nowadays, palace story is well known uh, due to Navalny, but first it was discovered by the Sergei Kolesnikov, who's directly involved. And he uh, had documentation, tapes, uh, or recordings proving that scheme. So it was really terrifying. We were discussing with colleagues how all it will end, and some of them were saying uh, blood or on the streets of Moscow. So now it's not in Moscow now, but in Ukraine, is, as we can see. Yeah, I was asked in these questions, what is your motivation? I would say um, that I could not help but saying something I learned. It's maybe the only motivation of an investigative journalism, because if we speak about money or prestige or something, it's, it is non-existent. Especially when um, you first publish something big, the reaction of people, uh, first, they, they don't believe often. Somebody may start to, to laugh, etc. And only 10 years later, <laughs> like everybody is saying, wow, in fact, <laughs> uh, it is completely true. <laughs> Probably it's a, a little exaggeration because investigative jo journalism, it, it's serious. It, everybody can do fact-checking basically uh, and confirm. It's, it's not just an opinion. Mm. But uh, it's like this. Um, yeah, Putin is powerful. Uh, what he did to Russia is terrible. Uh, like my family is, is still in, in Siberia, uh, living in misery. And they are intoxicated by propaganda. So I be believe official polls that uh, seventy-one percent is behind of Russians are uh, behind Putin. And even this war, it boosted a little bit his popularity. And yeah, that, that's very interesting. And and I wanted to get to that point, especially probably all of this has even deteriorated over the last weeks. We saw a lot of news articles coming out that Russian independent TV channels, radio channels are closing, that foreign journalistic outlets um, like the BBC, like CNN, like uh, RID, they are closing their offices in Russia and increasingly also that social media platforms like Facebook and, and Twitter are blocked. So for me as an outsider, it seems like it gets increasingly difficult for the civil society in Russia to receive objective or unbiased information about what is currently going on. So how, how does it work currently in Russia? How do they mm. uh, receive information? What kind of information do they receive? And mm. are there maybe also workarounds of this restriction on media freedom, like Tor browsers or VPN clients? Mm. Are people actively trying to work around these restrictions imposed by the government? Yeah, I'm very upset uh, with the situation in Russia. As you said, uh, many media outlets closed and it, it's like a historical break because uh, Echo of Moscow was uh, shut down, TV Rain, and many websites were blocked. Also, Facebook and Twitter were blocked and the new law was passed for spreading false information about the war. You can go for 15 years in prison. Also, it was prepared during several years because many journalists uh, left Russia before. There were criminal cases against them. They were put in the so-called lists of foreign agents. So in Russia, a, a physical person journalist may be foreign agent number 77, like a journalist of BBC. There is a great investigative team of Bellingcat, and they were also like labeled foreign agent. And yeah, I got my five minutes of fame. <laughs> it was two years ago. 
So Russian TV showed a report five minutes saying she is working for the most irrespectful media, the insider, <laughs> online investigative media. And uh, she is so anti-Russian that she is probably Ukrainian uh, because she uh, has sympathy for the so-called independent, you know, like Ukraine, but in uh, in a despising style, they, they call Ukraine. And uh, now we understand what it was the preparation for. So the Russian uh, watch TV and they can see narratives such as Ukraine was preparing nuclear war, NATO was ready to invade Russia. And, you know, we have serious proofs that on March 8th, NATO was already ready to invade Russia. Putin only prevented it. Also, 15 secret biolaboratories with biological and chemical weapons were found in Ukraine. All this was surrealistic. All this is without footage or reports. Just on talk shows, uh, or Russian TV adores uh, talk shows like uh, two or even three hours. Or we have eight people without reports, but they were saying all our army. The information is so serious that we can't uh, show you the pictures. But we say that uh, bio laboratories were found in Ukraine, something of this style. I unfortunately uh, don't have much hope that. Uh, tour VPN uh, will change everything because Russia also has uh, uh, troll factories. So they created themselves uh, telegram channels full of disinformation, websites, uh, even deep fakes, uh, it means fabricated videos, appear on telegram channels and then it's on every TV. So it's extremely difficult. You, you have to be professional in media literacy to, to have mind clear or better speak uh, foreign languages, <laughs> including Ukrainian, <laughs> to understand uh, what's happening now. It's, you know, it's my chance I, I can read in, like, in five languages. And of course, I won't believe that everybody is crazy except Russian. So it, it's a drama that Russians live in misery. Officially, we have 24 poor in Russia, and um, the mortality was very high, even taking in account coronavirus, it was higher than in the 90s, for example. And Putin need, needed to, to boost uh, his popularity. Corruption uh, has very much to do with it. Some uh, serious analysts believe that it is one of the most uh, important reasons why uh, he started this war. Yeah, I wanted to get to that. So you paint a very grim picture of what my next question would be, because I saw a couple of, of narratives showing in the Western media that were that were hopeful. One of the, the narratives was if the sanctions are working sooner or later, the civil society will start to put pressure on Putin. And we, we saw very brave protesters in the streets of, of St. Petersburg, in the streets of Moscow and all over the country. But obviously the regime was quite strict on restricting these efforts. So is there any hope that the, the civil society will learn more about this war? Or do you think that the whole media campaign, the whole restriction of, of objective news and yeah, these false narratives mm. that are fed into the, the media system, do you think that they will prevail and that Russians are just misinformed about the entire crisis? 
Yeah, most of the Russians are, are misinformed. Uh, in my own family, people prefer not to uh, give a call to the f- family members in Ukraine, but to watch TV. Because uh, what the TV did, they dehumanized the Ukrainians. They say, you know, they are Nazis. There was a strike on Kharkiv, so Ukrainians did it themselves, etc., it's like in in Germany in the 30s, there is narrative that everything is the fault of the United States. Well, some Russian actors, they do satiric uh, songs about, like, my building in, in Russia is dirty. Who did it? Uh, of course, Obama. Of course, US. But it became really the, the main uh, narrative. Uh, why Putin? Uh, back to your question, I understand why Western media show the protests, because as a journalist you have to give a hope for example if there is a fire there's always somebody who is trying to save people from this fire and you will uh, show him Otherwise, it is too dark. So it's normal to to show also bright-minded people who protest because sooner or later, the future, they will will be in the future. But it may take many years, 10 years or or even more um, because of this propaganda machine. Uh, I think we need to react, I know, OSCE, or someone else has has also to react to to this uh, constant uh, propaganda. I think Putin himself, he intoxicated himself with some propaganda narratives. When we watch his speech uh, that he practically declares the war to Ukraine, uh, some um, pieces of uh, the speech are not very energetic and lazy. And maybe he knows that he is lying, that Ukraine was ready to join NATO. But some pieces are really uh, with such hatred against Ukraine, probably he started to believe himself in what was Russian propaganda showing. And I don't know, I understand it It may be difficult, but but Western leaders should insist, you know, you know, the corruption scheme with Ukraine, uh, with the gas, it was carried out between an organized crime group of Sonsovska or Sonsovo, but also people from, uh, from Putin's inner circle and with a Ukrainian oligarch, it is worth uh, at least uh, $478 million a year, only one scheme. And uh, then there were others. So it was really profitable before Maidan because after Maidan, Euro-Maidan revolution in Ukraine happened, real struggle against corruption began. Special anti-corruption prosecutor's office was opened and uh, also special anti-corruption court. A a real call on on prosecutors was carried out. The Kremlin should be upset with that. And they started this propaganda and everything. Everybody is Nazi in Ukraine and probably they intoxicated themselves. Now, I I would like to transition a little bit from the society, from the media to the oligarch system in Russia. So from, again, from only what what I read, and I'm not an expert at all, is that the oligarchs control the entire country Mm. in terms of wealth, in terms of companies, and so on and so forth. So a question that we discussed before on the podcast, and I would love to get your take on this, is how is the relationship between the Russian oligarchs and the system Putin, let's say. So what are the power dynamics here? Because again, one narrative that is pushed by the Western media right now, and also a bit of hope there, 
is that once these sanctions are in place and once they start to show some effect and uh, oligarchs see their assets seized or their bank accounts frozen in Western jurisdictions, we saw a lot of media reports on yachts by mm -hmm. the German authorities, by the French authorities, by the Italian authorities. So once these assets are frozen or seized, that maybe they will start to exert some pressure on Putin that will ultimately maybe alleviate the tension and, and end the war. Mm -hmm. So what is your take on that? Do you think this is a realistic mm -hmm. assessment or do you think the oligarchs are not that powerful in terms of, of political influence on Putin? Yes, it, it is a very good question. In fact, oligarchs are for sure uh, not happy with what's happening. Uh, ten days before this war, there was a title uh, on Moscow Times uh, newspaper, Oligarchs are suffering in silence <laughs> because they, they could not uh, tell to Putin they are against uh, the war, but they were understanding that it will bring down their businesses and Russian economy. But why it is so? We have to go back to uh, Russian history like 30 years ago. For me, what is the most appalling, you know, in USSR, there was no private property. So what was done in the 90s, and the property uh, was given to, to people with criminal background. <laughs> Almost every oligarch in Russia started in organized crime. It means that on every oligarch in Russia, there is compromise. Of course, everybody re remembers Khodorkovsky, that he was an oligarch, and then he disagreed with Putin. He, he went into jail. I know that the case against the Ripaska was opened at least until 2011. So officially, he's a billionaire, uh, etc. But and since he started his affairs with Ismailovsky crime gang, with bank fraud, there was a complicated scheme to steal money from the Russian bank. So Deripaska started his business with the so-called Chechen Aviso in, in Russia, we, we call it complicated bank fraud scheme, how to steal billions from the Russian budget. Some oligarchs were involved in TVA frauds. Usmanov has friends in Sonsevskaya and common business with people, um, even in France, uh, we, we call it Fiche S. So people who are listed by security services as gangster, they have businesses with Usmanov, who has the most long yacht in the world. It was just seized in, in Hamburg, I believe. But in Russia, to, to be completely fair, also to do business, you need to be like this. It's like the, the common culture. Also, many oligarchs were put in jail and many governors or former ministers. So it should be a terror among them. Just an example, we were filming an interview with a top manager of Gazprom just to show luxury in which he's living. And it was so good <laughs> that we decided to repeat the, the movie in two years. And guess what? He's already in jail. Poor guy. Uh, he was saying off the record, or oh, Putin's trainers, the Rothenbergs, they're against me. They're trying to bring me down. Uh, he, was, he was so upset. And indeed, he's 76. Now he's in jail. 
and he lost his business in favor of Putin's friend. So we need to learn more about this terror which is uh, reigning uh, among the oligarchs. Nevertheless, I think that if the West uh, sanctions everybody and still they control economy and they are economy, Every small factory in Siberia, it's controlled by the oligarchs. Uh, by the way, on the companies often registered on BVI. So coal mine in Ural, close to Siberia, also is run with many offshore structures, etc. And this is why if everybody is on the sanctions, uh, probably it may have an effect still. What I get from what you're saying is that the oligarchs profited a lot from the privatization in the 90s and uh, they profited also a lot from Putin. But in the end, the political power is quite limited because if they speak up, they will get to jail, they will get their companies taken away. So what do you think the sanctions in the long term, will they have an effect to isolate Russia? Or what do you think are the geopolitical consequences of that? Yeah, this uh, solidarity with Ukraine is impressive. It's already a big uh, message <laughs> to Kremlin. I would say the West uh, needs uh, to sanction more the Western enablers also. For example, we know there is such a bank, Russia, it's called, it is under sanctions uh, since 2014, the annexation of Crimea. But uh, there's a managing company of this bank, and we have a man close to Berlusconi, a man close to Sarkozy, and a Monegasque, former finance minister, um, minister of finances of Monaco. By the way, this bank is considered to be the bank of Putin's friends, and organized crime really co-established it. Uh, since long time, uh, investigative journalism in Russia knew that uh, they were minor shareholders, uh, the mobsters. But in 2018, I discovered that they were major shareholders of all the Putin's bank. So uh, once again, to Russian history. Uh, so basically, the security services, uh, they like scared all the Russian society, look, democracy in the 90s, it's uh, gangs, it's a chaos, look at this. But now uh, we can see who are those uh, gangsters, why they are at the bank of, of Putin and another enterprises uh, connected to him. So this is, I consider it as my goal in, in journalism to explain to Russians. So the Kremlin narrative, the, the narrative of Putin himself, it, it is his savior against the mafia. There was mafia in the 90s, he came to power, and now we have an order. But in fact, he was connected to this famous mafia. So it really looks like, uh, I understand for a Western observer, it may sound like a paranoia, but in Russia, uh, since uh, security services are at power, it looks like they tarnished democracy in the 90s also on purpose cultivating, like pretending they, uh, they couldn't do nothing against gangsters, but in fact, uh, giving uh, them uh, businesses, properties, the center of Moscow, St. Petersburg, ports, etc. So it's uh, about Russian corruption. You know, the, there's an opposition uh, forum in Russia now. It gathers in Vilnius, in Lithuania, and they propose to sanction organized crime guys, uh, also oligarchs, uh, Putin and people uh, running propaganda as a whole. Also, propaganda machine 
it belongs to the, the uh, mentioned bankruptcy of Putin. So we, we have those people, uh, Western enablers, uh, then Putin's Dutch uh, neighbors in this bank. It is running uh, this whole machine of the war, the machine uh, which pretends uh, we are surrounded by Nazis or Russia could not help to invade Ukraine. Yeah, this is, this this is very interesting. And I would like to dig a little bit deeper here because you said, and I think this is a very admirable and a great goal to use your voice as an investigative journalist to inform Russians what's really going on. Now, my question is, like, how do you do that? Because we talked about that the access to independent media is shut down. So the Russians basically have no means to see what's going on in the world. So how do you get your message to Russian citizens? What, what kind of ways do you use mm -hmm. to try to reach as many people in Russia as possible? Yesterday, I received a proposal to organize shortwave radio coverage for Russia. And I'm really considering this proposal because I worked also at Radio Liberty for several years. So I started my investigation there. I have an experience with radio. So it's crazy that the time of short waves may be back. But in the same time, uh, even in Siberian forest, you can listen to it and uh, to reach uh, like villages uh, in Russia after all, why not? And of course, all, all the means are good. You know, I know people who are working for Russian propaganda. Some of them, of course, understand what they are making and they like do what they can basically against propaganda. For example, they are asked to do a coverage. Ukraine is breaking the Minsk agreements. Ukraine shelled positions of Donetsk or whatever. So the propaganda task agency is reporting that. But the last sentence is, we could not find the confirmation from OSCE. <laughs> they, you know, the maximum of what they can do. Oh, once I was confronted by a propaganda journalist during our forum of Free Russia in Vilnius, I, I mentioned we were asking to introduce sanctions. So a journalist was very aggressive with me because I was next to Gary Kasparov, who is the famous Russian opposition leader. And so those propagandists were unable to record Kasparov. He was just running away. <laughs> it was a good thing to do, you know, because the coverage anyway... They denigrate you. And so they were attacking me, <laughs> saying, oh, you know nothing about Russia. You live in France. I was so angry. I was uh, shouting, you know, my grandparents, they have 100 euros pension in Siberia. They don't even have uh, toilets, only outhouses. And to my big surprise, exactly this sentence <laughs> was put on air. Uh, so I think... Um, And that uh, we maybe have surprises of, of, of that style. Um, all the healthy forces uh, have to work uh, together. Okay, I see. So short waves may be back and <laughs> collaborations between journalists. So uh, do you have some maybe closing remarks on what the anti-corruption community could do to support these kinds of efforts or... What do you think are the most efficient ways for the community to get together and to contribute to maybe uh, raising awareness or to put pressure on Russian oligarchs? What do you think could be like some bottom-up 
civil society efforts. Uh, well, it's it's high time to pass the message that corruption kills. Even me, uh, in my work, I sometimes uh, I heard, oh, you are speaking about corruption, but uh, like Putin is not a Democrat, it's much worse. But that it is really linked together. People uh, still uh, don't uh, quite realize all those uh, geopolitical uh, things. They are important, but in a normal, transparent society, the experts will bring the real information to the president. And in in corrupt society, or only friends, special services, uh, they say uh, to the leader uh, what he he wants to hear, basically. And as we can see, it's dangerous for the the whole world. And it starts really from uh, Dutch neighbors' copinage. Um, <laughs> say in French, on nepotism in the government. So we probably we should try to pass the message zero tolerance to corruption. In Russia, if you also go back to history, in the 90s, it was tolerated. I spoke to my fellow colleagues, journalists who are elder than me, because me, I was a child in the 90s. And so how did you allow it, it to happen? And uh, some of them were honest and they, they said, of course, we saw the corruption growing, but we were thinking that, okay, they can still and uh, build a democracy in the same time. So for a Western mentality, it's obvious that it can't go together still and building democracy. The first thing you, you will need is to shut down media. Uh, try to write about your corruption. So, to just to explain uh, this, the importance of zero tolerance to, to corruption for Russians, it's already not bad. And uh, also to explain that honest businessmen exist. What also is uh, drama in Russia, ordinary people believe that, okay, we are bad, our oligarchs are bad and corrupt everybody. You can see uh, those palaces, uh, uh, yoked, uh, etc. But everybody is bad. I'm. Not, I don't agree. Of course, the famous Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. They spend a lot uh, on on philanthropy and real philanthropy. So, you, you know, not everybody is a monster. A better example exists. So this is maybe a bit to be hopeful. And I think uh, that was a very insightful interview, Anastasia. So uh, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast and big thank you for your incredible work that you're doing first to uncover corruption by Russian elites, but then also to bring the message across and try to reach as many uh, Russian citizens as possible, especially since it is increasingly difficult to get unbiased, objective information in Russia. So Anastasia, thank you so much. Please continue your great work. I'm, I'm sure you will do that. And All the best for you and your family. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more, check out the show notes. You can also use the timestamps to navigate through the episodes. If you haven't already, make sure to check out our other episodes of our special series on the war in Ukraine and the role corruption plays in it. If you want to support our podcast, please spread the episode via social media. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with assistance by Emia Saad and music by Kehan Golkar. Stay safe, everyone. Until next time.